Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, I like you, like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. David Daly, Dave Daly, is a journalist. He has covered the spectrum of journalism, starting in politics, moving into arts and books, a little bit of lifestyle. He's written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Slate, The Washington Post, New York Magazine. He notably was the editor at Salon for a number of years. The last seven or eight years, he has been working on books. He had a book called Rat Eft. I won't say the full title in the introduction because I guess I should take this moment to prepare everyone who's listening with kids that during the interview, he does say the full title, and there's an F-bomb in the title of that book. His most recent book, which just now is going into paperback, is a book called Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. Dave Daly is a good dude. He's fighting the good fight. I will say this, during the conversations I've had on Wheels Off, it's never gotten overtly political. I have obviously my own political feelings, and and they are pretty strong ones. I've spent my life being a peace activist and a hardcore liberal for whatever it's worth. But I've let Wheels off be something that exists kind of outside of politics because I feel like it it is is so divisive right now. And I want these conversations to be about creativity and the creative life. During this conversation with Dave, who full disclosure is an old friend that I've done stuff with on and off since he was at the Hartford Current 20 years ago, it gets pretty political because that is his work now. He goes into great detail about working with activists throughout America over the last number of years. But it's not, you know, it's not mean-spirited. It's not the kind of thing that I think is going to bum anybody out or piss anybody off. It's just someone who has devoted their life to something that is creative, but in the nonfiction 
political landscape. So this conversation, I found it really moving at certain points, really fascinating throughout. Please welcome to Wheels Off, David Daly. Welcome to Wheels Off, Dave Daly. Hey, Rhett. This is fun. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. I I think this is really cool. I've known you for years, often as an editor, but you are very much an author. Uh, Congrats on the book. Thank you so much. Uh, In paperback now, after after a publication date in in March that you know kicked off a pandemic. So I'm I'm excited to March. I'm excited to have it out. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, the pandemic screwed up a lot of things. It's hard to like, you know, got to keep it. You've in had a very different year. Yeah, we well, we all have. But um, so tell me right off the bat, what creative project are you working on now, and how does it light you up? Yeah, this is a book about democracy. You know, I got to travel the country for a year and embed myself with all of these amazing activists who are making change, who got up off of Twitter and turned off the news and said, I can make a difference in my home state. And they won. And I got to travel around Idaho on an old RV called the Medicaid Express with these young people who were determined to expand Medicaid in this bright red state, right? And they bought an old RV and they went out and they got a ballot initiative on the up up and running, a petition drive, and they won. And I got to tour Idaho with them. I got to, you know, tour Florida with the amazing cross-partisan folks who um, undid an old relic of Jim Crow in which uh, if you had a felony conviction in Florida, you lost your voting rights forever. Um, You know, and all of these people won and they won big and they created these new political movements that are just what we need to move this country forward. And it was just um, an inspiring thrill to get to be out on the road and tell these stories. That's pretty amazing. I love the idea of young people in Idaho battling for Medicare. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, um, they had it's a great story. Uh, they were born in in Sandpoint, Idaho, which is this small town. It's about as far north as you can go in Idaho and still be in the United States. Um, and there was an education levy that kept failing in their hometown. And they were reading about it in the newspapers and seeing friends on Facebook talk about it. And one of them was in medical school and the other one was a history professor at Columbia. And they said, you know, we might have some organizing skills that would be useful. And they went back and they won. I mean, Sandpoint has been this kind of conservative hotbed for folks, um, militias and anti-taxers and the American redoubt movement, uh, all kinds of, you know, California and Oregon folks leaving because it's too liberal for them. So they go up to Idaho and then they try not to, you know, pay any taxes. You look at the newspapers up there and the real estate agents are, are holding 
machine guns and, <laughs> and wearing patriotic sweaters to appeal to the new people who are moving into town. So you can understand why the, the public schools might be in need of this help. And they went up there and they went door to door and they started talking to people and they won. And this it told them that there was a movement that could be organized even in Idaho. Uh, and they went out and they just started doing it. You know, I, I mean, I joined them in Idaho Falls one day, which is this Mormon town. It's small. You've probably been there. And um, we walk up this driveway campaigning for you know Medicaid expansion. Uh, and there is a bumper sticker on this old pickup that says, Vietnam, we were winning when I left. Oh, and I'm thinking uh, maybe we should go to the house next door, guys. <laughs> you know, uh, things were going good in 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 Saigon when this guy was there. He might not greet us too positively, and they don't notice this bumper sticker. They walk right up, they knock on the door. The scary-looking older guy comes out, answers, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I'm with you on this." My wife, my kids, they all fall in this gap, and I'm going to vote for this. And I think my jaw hit the ground because it was like this, this, this lesson in that if we can find a way to knock on each other's doors and talk to one another again, even these issues that seem so hard to solve, even in bright red states, there's a way forward. So you embedded yourself with all these different activists, what, 2018? 2018, yes. Wow. And you were, you were out there for a year around the country. Out there for a year, Alabama and Maine and Idaho and wow. uh, Florida, um, Missouri, North Dakota, Utah. It was, it, was, it was a hell of a year. And then the book comes out in 2020. And then did you feel like watching the elections of 2020, you were sort of watching come to fruition, the thing that you had sort of chronicled? Um, I mean, this was the follow-up to a book uh, called uh, Rat Fucked, which I think I can say on a podcast. Sure. Uh, you know, why not? Um, which was about Republican gerrymandering, um, the drawing of, of, uh, of legislative lines in such a way as to give your side an advantage. Um, and what I feel like we saw in, in 2020 was kind of the culmination of a decade plus of Republican efforts to rig election rules, um, draw themselves advantages and win and govern for, for, from the minority, um, there are more than 50 million of us right now who live in a state in which the state legislature is controlled by the party that won fewer votes in the 2018 election. And mm. that's insane, right? And it's, it's Pennsylvania, it's North Carolina, it's Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, all these states that we keep talking about uh, because of the horrible ways that they run elections. Um, and we're in the middle of, of, of talking about that right now as, as, as Congress battles over the electoral college and um so much of this has its roots in redistricting um mark meadows who is now the president's chief of staff he runs a sandwich shop in north carolina in in 2010 he has no political power at all 
when the Republicans redraw the, the congressional districts in North Carolina in order to guarantee themselves 10 of the state's 13 seats, even in years when they win fewer votes, so 71% of the seats, even with less than 50% of the votes, Meadows jumps into a primary for the congressional seat out in the western part of the state in Asheville. And Asheville, as you know, is this amazing hippie vegan city in the middle of the western mountains of North Carolina. Uh, And the new line cracked Asheville in half. They just drew a line straight through the middle of it. Mm. So uh, it it essentially diluted all of those voters. It stuck half of them in the 10th, half of them in the, the 11th district. So Democrats could not possibly win, but it ensured that the most conservative Republican would. Meadows jumps in the race and you can find the video of this up on YouTube of him campaigning and saying, I'm going to send Barack Obama back to Kenya or wherever it is he comes from. Mm -hmm. He wins this primary with like 37, 38% of the vote as the most conservative guy in a, in a crowded field. And he goes to Congress. He causes the government shutdowns. He, he, he forces John Boehner out of, of, of power as speaker. Uh, And now he's the most powerful man in the Trump White House, and he's pushing a coup. And this does not, he's a sandwich shop owner in North Carolina, if not for the Republican gerrymandering that goes on in 2011, and it elevates him, and it it changes the nature of, of who we elect and how they behave in office. It's funny. So, God, listening to you talk, I'm struck by the passion with which you approach these subjects. And obviously you've devoted now pretty much a decade of your life to specifically these kind of political questions. Um, And I know like, as you know, as we see your newest book go into paperback and it came out in this tricky year, like I know you as a journalist that's, you know, you've always done a lot of things, you know, from arts to it's not always been politics, but I wonder you know, what is pulling you into these projects that you're working on? Because clearly it's, there's passion there. Yeah. I, you know, I was the editor of Salon for many years and um, we did all kinds of fun things there Yeah, um, together back in the day. Um, And I was running our politics coverage and I fundamentally didn't understand what was happening in 2013 because every day it seemed like the coverage we were doing and the stories we were assigning and our, our idea meetings were becoming more and more insane. Um, and I grew up in Connecticut and at the end of 2012 in Connecticut, there's, there's that gruesome massacre at Sandy Hook and you see kindergartners and first graders killed and um, our first son born in January of 2013. Um, so I think that it really hit home. And, you know, I, I was not a political a, a naif, you know, uh, I, I didn't think that that would immediately um, bring about sensible gun reform. But I thought if it didn't at least start a conversation, we were doomed, right? Um, and, you know, nothing happened and nothing changes. And and one day I asked a really simple question. I said, why didn't the Democrats take back the House in 2012 when they got the Senate and Obama's reelected? And I didn't know the answer. And I stumbled across 
this plan called REDMAP, the redistricting majority project that I write about in, in Ratfucked. Um, and um, what I saw blew my mind because I had no idea that it had happened. I was running the, the politics coverage at Salon um, and we didn't write about it. Nobody wrote about it. I mean, it, 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 it was this, it, it, it was this under the radar strategy and it was like money ball for, for, for baseball. It was, it, it was brilliant. Um, I mean, Moneyball is the Michael Lewis book in which um, he explains how the Oakland A's are able to win uh, even with a smaller budget because they figure out the sort of undervalued market piece. Uh, And it was, you know, baseball players with a high on base percentage. Um, And what Republicans figured out is that state legislatures were the undervalued piece that nobody was playing in that arena. And it was really cheap to jump in and win. And I came across a webpage for this redistricting majority project. And they were, were crowing about how they had pulled this off for $30 million. And they were taking all of the credit for, winning these state legislatures in 2010 and how as a result of the maps that they drew in 2011, the maps had become a firewall against democracy in 2012. And they had had a really good year, even though they lost. And it turns out Barack Obama and Eric Holder are having the exact same conversation in the white house. Um, Obama and Holder, um, Holder has told me, Right after the, the 2012 election, they're looking at the numbers and they're saying, what happened to us? We thought we had a pretty good night in all these states, but we made no gains. And in some places, we actually lost. Um, this had happened under the noses of everybody. And it locked in Republican minority control around the country for a decade and it defined and redefined our politics in ways that we are still dealing with. And to sort of stumble onto this as a story, it, it, it was just, it was just mind blowing. Um, and um, I, this is kind of a crazy story, but um, I was at a party when you're in New York, and you're you're running salon you often get invited to these really cool galley parties uh, for somebody's uh book and um i got invited to a galley party for uh philip glass's memoir and um you know so it's 30 people in the room and there's philip glass in the corner playing piano for, for all of us and it's it's like what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is the greatest night ever. Uh, and I just was talking with one of the editors at the publishing house. And I said, are you aware of what's going on here? And, and he, he's like, this is a book. Um, let's have lunch tomorrow. And that's what we did. And that's how it all happened. Uh, you, I never, I never imagined that I would be spending these last seven, eight years uh, thinking about nothing but voting rights and democracy issues. And oh. it happens 
it happens because you end up at a party at a Soho loft with Philip Glass playing in the corner and your life changes. That's so funny. So, so I've, um, on Wheels Off during these conversations, yeah. I've spoken to, you know, lots of writers of different kinds, comedy writers and TV writers and novelists, but I've never spoken to someone that's as, as journalistic in nature as you. And, and I wonder growing up in Connecticut, did you have a moment where you knew this was what you were going to do? Did you know always that you were going to be a journalist? Yeah, I saw all the president's men as a kid. Uh, my parents let me stay up way too late for like the ABC movie of the week in 1979. And it's, you know, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward breaking Watergate and, um, you know, taking down the president of the United States uh, and standing up for freedom and goodness and all that is right. Um, and it was like, I want to do that. And um, from a, at that point forward, it was pretty much the path. And I, th- I feel like when I first met you, you were at the Hartford Current. Is that right? That is right. Yes. Uh, I was in Hartford. I was, um, I-, I was running about media and books in Hartford and-, and took over all the books and ideas pages. And we were able to do all kinds of fun things. I think that was what led us to the um, Dave Eggers and I did uh, started a project in the Hartford books pages uh, in which we would give writers uh, 20 minutes and say, uh, do three stories. So uh, uh, take an hour and just like push past that like weird editor in you that says, uh, this is no good. You know, it's like, it's like first idea, best idea. Yeah. Um, and we did this in the paper, which just seemed like a fun way to, to, to do deadline fiction and to get, um, you know, something interesting into the arts and ideas pages. Um, and we had so much fun with it that we turned it into an, an issue of McSweeney's. And this would have been like 20 years ago. And I had the, the fun time of um, getting in touch with probably a boy, about a hundred writers or so, including you. Uh, and, and said, give this a try. Uh, and some people were like, no way I can't possibly work that way. Uh, <laughs> and some people were, this is great. I sometimes still get emails from folks who, who did those and who say, I think you've still got two or three of them sitting in your email somewhere. Please don't ever show them to anybody. <laughs> um, I won't share their names. Uh, but uh, it was so much fun. And uh, I think you can probably, s- I still find the episode, the issue of McSweeney's online and in print and see Rhett's story and everything else. Yeah. Boy, that's so funny. I mean, for me, when you hit me up for it, I thought, well, that's a lot like writing a song. Who cares? I can do that. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, I think it's, I think a lot of us struggle with that internal editor that says, this isn't quite right, or I can't put this down yet. I have to kind of work it through. Um, And sometimes it's just getting the stuff down on paper. And then you, you say, I can work with it later, but first I got to get it out. And the freedom to get it out um, is, is, is an important thing to kind of push past. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, as someone who's um, in the middle of a, what seems like a lifelong struggle against the idea of long form prose, 
you know, like that's why songs to me have always been so great because you can sit down and then write a song and then get up and go make lunch. Um, and it doesn't give you the time to talk yourself out of it. So yeah. I like, I wonder with you, because you've devoted so, you know, so much time over the last number of years, um, the better part of a decade on these two books. Um, like, I wonder, because that's a lot of time and, and you're on the road and you're researching and you're talking to people and I'm, I'm sure and maybe I'm just imagining, but I imagine that these subjects can beat you down inside because maybe sometimes you feel like, okay, I can do all the work in the world and make as persuasive an argument as, as anyone's ever made. And it's not going to do anything. So I, uh, I, I don't, I'm not saying that's the case, mm-hmm. but I'm no. saying that's what I imagine it would be like internally. What, like, what is that like for you, the struggle against those internally generated obstacles? And what do you do to overcome it? You know, when I was writing the first one, I had never done anything like this. So it was, it was just the act of putting one foot in front of the other. You know, it's not that different from writing a song and then having lunch. It's, it's, it's writing 500 words and saying, that's what I've got today. And now I'm going to make lunch and then I'm going to come back to it. You know, um, reporting is just grinding people down sometimes and getting them to meet with you and then to have conversations with you. You know, I mean, I was the crazy lefty editor of Salon. I needed to get these Republicans who had done this to talk to me. Um, And it turns out that they all have egos um, and they can, they all want to tell you their stories. Um, And sometimes you just have to listen and ask the uh, right question, which is, you know, um, which is half the battle of, of writing something like this. Um, You, you meet amazing people along the way. You know, I mean, I was in Alabama on this, on this new book and, um, I was with these wonderful activists who were doing the job of trying to register all of these people who had had felony convictions in Alabama and lost their voting rights forever as a result. And the state decided to give everybody those rights back under uh, essentially court order, but they wouldn't do anything to try to find them and tell them this or help them register. And there were a handful of activists uh, who started going door to door looking for these 75,000 people. Oh. And I joined them at a bus station in Birmingham, Alabama one morning. It was a, a hot August morning. And um, we were walking up to people on their way to work, you know, and I'm a, a middle-aged white guy walking towards you know, people at the Birmingham bus station. Um, and we're looking for people who might've had felony con- convictions in the past who needed to register. So you have to find a way to talk about this and that they kind of trained me. And they said, well, you, you go up to people and you say, Hey, we want to tell you about a change in the law. It, it could affect someone, y- you know, um, and this woman is like, Oh no, I can't vote. You know, she was a, uh, uh, a 35 and she was heading off to work at a hair salon. And she's like, Oh no, 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 I can't vote. I have a felony conviction. Um, and we was like, well, that's why we're here. There's a change in the law. 
we can give you your voting rights back. Uh, and she's like, what? And she had been 17 years old. She was a teenager and she got busted on marijuana possession as a senior in high school and lost her voting rights forever before she was even able to use them once. And, you know, I mean, marijuana possession, you lose your voting rights forever. But if you're black in Alabama in the 1990s, that's what happened. The 90s, that breaks my heart. Mm. Not the 1890s, the 1990s. Uh, And this was the law in Alabama up until the middle part of the last decade, up until about 2015, 2016. Mm. Um, And we signed her up to vote on the spot. And we're all in tears by the end of this. She's like, all I wanted to do was vote for Barack Obama once, and I couldn't do it. And now I will do this forever. Um, And that's what keeps you going. You know, um, you have a moment like that in the course of this work, and um, it keeps you it keeps you moving for a long time. And you've so and you've got a family back at home. Yes. And um, and so you well, like I used to do in the before times as well, you would leave and go work and work and then come home. And I bet stories like that helped in terms of getting the family to understand what you were yeah, doing. You know, I mean, um, I mean, uh, it, it, you know, it occurred to me in the middle of the of. Um, when Justice Ginsburg died last year, you know, um, and she was replaced by a conservative jurist. Um, if this jurist serves as long as, as Ginsburg does, she will be on the bench until my son is in his late fifties and he'll turn eight next month. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I feel like we're, what we're doing right now is, going to have ripple effects for the next five decades, you know, it's going to create the kind of world our kids live in. And um, we have to uh, try and tell this, these stories and make this important change, um, you know, but um, no, I'm, I'm, it's, it's, you know, it's no fun to be, away and um you know it creates all kinds of extra burdens on my wife uh while i'm off doing that um uh, w- w- which i'm very grateful that w- we've been able to to do um but you have to be in person to uh, try and tell these stories when that's been hard this year hasn't it yeah you can't really be out and and doing it um so um it's been an important you know I think that hurt a lot of Democratic candidates this year, especially those who were who I talk about in this book, who knew the importance of 2020, which, you know, like 2010 was one of those census years. So it's a redistricting year. And and the state legislatures that are in power right now are the ones that are going to draw the district lines that affect us for the next decade. Mm. And that's what I mean about long term consequences. The president who was a, a elected 
will serve until 2024 when, I mean, fingers crossed, we'll have another presidential election. The state legislatures elected last year are going to draw maps that will be around until 2031, which is a whole lot longer. Um, and they couldn't get out and go door to door the way they uh, they wanted to. And as a result, Republicans held on under those maps that they drew a decade ago in in North Carolina, in, in Texas, um, in Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, Florida. Um, and the there is going to be a, a big red firewall in front of a majority of voters in all of those states for the next decade as a result. I'm so grateful that you do this work that you do. It's got to, oh, it's got to be so hard to keep doing it. The Sisyphusian aspect of it has just got to be brutal. The other side plans really, really well, and they have a long-term strategy um, because they know that they can't win without it because they are a shrinking part of the American story and demographic and so they're trying everything they possibly can to rule from sort of this aging, white, rural, conservative demographic. And it's, it's working in too many places. And this, we have to stop it. Um, and there's a lot of people working hard to do that. Yeah. Um, so I, I I love looking at your career. I love having watched it from afar and seen all the cool things that you've done and continue to do. Um, I wonder if you were to meet the 21-year-old you, but now in, in, in today's world, um, what advice might you give yourself? It's um, a great question. You know, um, keep going. Just keep going, you know. Um, I, uh, I, I knew I wanted to do this, but I didn't, you know. And, um, and, and, do the work you want to do when you want to do it. I mean, I left, I left politics writing and went off and did arts and music writing for a long time, and then I jumped into into book, book pages at newspapers and. Um, was it details for a little while and kind of hopscotched and lived in different places and tried different things as, as, as I wanted to. And if you make, if you make choices that sort of your heart tells you are, are the right ones. um, I think you look back over a a span of a couple decades and say, yeah, okay. That, that kind of made sense. I see why I did that and how it all worked out. Well, God, it seems like it has, and I hope that the um, just the incredible number of hours and the passion that you've put into it, the work you've done, I hope it has some effect on this world of ours. And I mean, I really appreciate it, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much, Dave. We fight on, Rhett, and I hope we get to see you on the road sometime soon doing what we all love to see you do. Boy, fingers crossed. Um, thank you once again for being on Wheels Off. Thank you, Rhett. Pleasure. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. 
That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.